Hi, everybody. I am doing something a little different today. In this episode of We Are Science Experiments, I am going to respond to a podcast titled Vax Talk that features Paul Offit speaking about the new asthma aluminum study that just came out from the CDC, titled Association Between Aluminum Exposure from Vaccines Before Age 24 Months and Persistent Asthma at Age 24 to 59 Months. Please like or subscribe and let me know if you like what's going on here. Without further ado, let's jump right into it. here because we're talking about a study that was just released today that makes a correlation between aluminum in childhood vaccines and asthma. So before we dive too deep into that, let's talk a little bit about the role of aluminum in vaccines. So why are we putting this, you know, what we use to wrap up our food when we have leftovers into vaccines? So aluminum salts act as an adjuvant, and what adjuvant means is it allows you to give either fewer doses of a vaccine or lesser quantities of the active ingredient of the vaccine. It enhances the immune response. Okay, so let's pause it right there. So he is saying that an aluminum adjuvant is allows us to give fewer doses. Fewer doses? Wait a minute. We give, let's see, DTAP is three, let's see, two, two months four months, six months, that's three. And then we go another one at like 12 to 15 months, that's four. Then we have another one at four, another one at 12, probably another one when you become an adult, when you get pregnant, every single pregnancy for Tdap. Don't forget everybody around you when you're pregnant. So your husband, parents, your husband's parents. The OB says, don't let any family around your brand new baby unless they have gotten their Tdap. Oh, but we're not done. Every time you fall inside your house, every time you get bitten by a dog, step on a nail, or get a bad burn, you are expected to get another Tdap. And then if you happen to be like a nurse or a healthcare worker of some kind, then you're gonna get a few more doses for that as well. So with every injection, not only are you getting more of the aluminum adjuvant, but you're also getting more antigens each time or the active ingredient. So this is a lot of doses if someone actually does everything that they're being told to do. So my question is, is anyone actually keeping track of how much injected aluminum a person gets and and how that cumulative exposure affects a person's health in the long run? Is anyone doing that? And bookmark what he said enhances the immune response because we're going to dig into that in two seconds. So we've been using adjuvants like aluminum or aluminum salts and vaccines really since the 1940s. So we have an extensive decades, eight, like roughly 80 years of experience with uh, aluminum salts and vaccines. And we know that they're benign. We know that... We know that they're benign? Oh, I wouldn't quite say that. No, they're not benign or else they wouldn't be in the vaccine. So let's dig into what an adjuvant is, okay? So adjuvant comes from the Latin word adjuvare, and that means to help. So while it does have this very euphemistic meaning baked into the term, 
An adjuvant's idea of helping is by killing cells and destroying tissue. And it's because of this quality of aluminum salts in the body with human tissue. It's the reason why it's included in vaccines is because the vaccine itself, if it doesn't have a live virus, it's not really going to cause an immune response. And so that's the whole reason. However, this cytotoxicity, you know, if it gets in the wrong place, like say your brain, it could definitely cause some problems. But that's not the only way it could cause problems either, because sometimes a person's immune response could be too strong, or they could create an immune response against self-proteins. That would be an autoimmune condition. Here is a 2021 study titled Role of Damage-Associated Molecular Pattern Cell Death Pathways in Vaccine-Induced Immunity. And here's a direct quote. Although adjuvants have been commonly used to increase vaccine efficacy, the mechanisms underlying their actions are not well-defined. It has been proposed that various types of adjuvants, including alone, are associated with DAMPs, which is damage-associated molecular patterns, and cell death pathways to mount optimal immunogenic responses. DAMPs are triggered by cellular stress and death or tissue injury. This review is attempting to describe how vaccine adjuvants work, precisely because they and we don't know. And then he mentioned that we've been using aluminum adjuvants for decades. We've been using them for 80 years. And so like that is some kind of proof that of their safety, Mm, that's not really how that works. Consider this example. Humans and mankind have been using lead for 6,000 years and the toxicity was recognized as early as 2000 BC, but we still used lead, made things with lead for hundreds of years, thousands of years, and it was finally removed from house paint in 1978. Point is, is that you can have something in your uh, environment that is harmful. You can have a long period of time where you don't know that it's harmful. And that could simply be because you're not collecting the data, but not being aware of some substance or chemicals, toxicity or danger for the human body does not make it safe. Those are two different things. It, like aluminum, first of all, is the most abundant metal on the Earth's crust. It's a light metal. Um, it's it's uh, in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink. It's in a number of the foods that we eat. There is no avoiding aluminum any more than there's avoiding the, the heavy metals that exist on the Earth's crust. So if you look in the, in the bloodstream of, of people who haven't received any vaccines, for example, you're going to find aluminum. You're going to find also heavy metals like mercury and thallium and beryllium and cadmium and arsenic. Okay, so there is a lot to unpack or respond to, but I would like to start with what he just was talking about. It sounds like he's referencing a specific study or series of studies. So let's see what we can find. So published in 2021, umbilical cord blood metal mixtures and birth size in Bangladeshi children. So this study is not mentioning aluminum specifically, but It was measuring the amounts of several metals, arsenic, cadmium, manganese, and lead in umbilical cords, and they found that higher levels of metal mixtures in the umbilical cords were significantly linked with smaller birth size. And here is a 2015 study. The study is titled Concentration of Lead, Mercury, Cadmium, Aluminum, Arsenic, and Manganese in Umbilical Cord Blood of Jamaican Newborns. 
And I would like to read a quote. Um, This is actually in the introduction of the study. Exposure to several trace elements slash heavy metals, including lead, mercury, cadmium, arsenic, and aluminum during pregnancy has been shown to be harmful to the developing fetus and can be harmful to the human nervous system, even at low levels of exposure. The geometric mean cord blood aluminum concentration was higher for children whose mothers had completed their education up to high school compared to those whose mothers had any education beyond high school. So educated mothers had infants with less aluminum in their cord blood. Here's a highly concerning quote. Previous studies have shown that there is no safe level for aluminum. And I also wanted to mention, if you have not seen any of the aluminum documentaries, like there's a few with Christopher Exley, Age of Aluminum, I do have them on my website. And also I have several articles on aluminum, the history. I think it's definitely worth digging in there because we will find out, you will find out that we haven't actually always had exposure to aluminum. It has to be mined and it's a pretty difficult process to get aluminum separated out of the rock that it lives in. So that's one of the reasons why we didn't really discover aluminum until the late 1800s, early 1900s. It's because it's such a extremely hard process to get it. Just something I'll read to you. Aluminum is the single most abundant metallic element in the earth's crust, but for something that makes up 8% on average of the ground beneath your feet, it's extremely hard to come by in its elemental form. Just because something is pervasive in the environment and just because you can't control it doesn't mean then we should just be injecting small amounts into our infants. That actually makes no sense to me. Because we live on the earth's crust. There is no avoiding that. Um, when we went through this with mercury back in the uh, uh, sort of early 19, early 2000s, late 1990s, um, I had to testify at a committee meeting once where uh, one of the congressmen stood up and he said, you know, when it comes to mercury, I have zero tolerance. Well, if you have zero tolerance for mercury, you got to move to another planet because on this planet, there's mercury. Well, I don't think anyone is trying to get rid of aluminum off the planet. I think it's okay where it is. I think we could all probably agree on that. But, you know, we all, again, we all come in contact with aluminum. So the question is then if you get injected with aluminum, because obviously when you ingest aluminum, when you eat aluminum, you'll you'll take about 1% of that into your bloodstream. Obviously, when you in- inject it, 100% gets into your bloodstream. So wouldn't that be much worse? Yes, we are concerned with the injection of aluminum because it is so much more bioavailable than ingesting aluminum. But again, if you look at people, children who get aluminum vaccines, you can't tell that they that they've increased their level of aluminum because it's so quickly excreted from the body and because you always have aluminum in your body anyway because um, you're always eating aluminum or drinking aluminum. Okay, I know that I'm just a mom, but I do know how to read. So there are many studies that looked at aluminum metabolism in animals specifically and they tracked the aluminum adjuvant. And they saw that at day 28, those animals were still excreting aluminum. So no, it wasn't quickly excreted. He also referred to, if you look at children or people, that we've looked at the aluminum absorption. So he is referring to the Tammy Movza study, which I will read to you. It is a 2013 research paper. It is titled, Effect of Routine Vaccination on Aluminum and Essential Element Levels in Preterm Infants. 
So really quickly, what they did was they had 15 preterm infants who were still in the NICU and they were scheduled for their two-month vaccinations. So they took blood and urine one day before the vaccines and then one day after. And the results are no significant change in levels of urinary or serum aluminum were seen after vaccination. Significant declines were noted post-vaccination in serum iron, manganese, selenium, and zinc, as was a significant increase in copper serum level. So the most obvious question that for some reason Tammy Movzas didn't ask is where did the aluminum go? Okay, so she's reassured that there's no serum rise or urine rise in aluminum, but the whole idea, the whole argument that is often put forth is that aluminum is rapidly excreted by the body. It's, it's excreted by the kidneys. It's rapidly eliminated. And Paul just said that too. So if that's true, then why was there no rise in the urine? If that hypothesis is true, where did the aluminum go? Sadly, we know that this is just another one of the myths because aluminum adjuvant is not quickly excreted and actually it would make a very bad adjuvant if it was because it wouldn't create the desired immune response. And shockingly, we've known for quite a long time that aluminum adjuvant from vaccines is not quickly excreted from the body. So we know this from in vivo studies done with rabbits, for example. There's a 1997 paper written by Florend. It is titled in vivo absorption of aluminum containing vaccine adjuvants using 26 aluminum. And they tracked the metabolism of aluminum adjuvants, different ones, aluminum phosphate and aluminum hydroxide. At 28 days, only 51% of the aluminum phosphate had been absorbed and only 22% of it had been excreted in urine and of aluminum hydroxide at 28 days, only 17% average was absorbed and only 5.6% of that had been excreted. And when they did sacrifice the rabbits after 28 days, they found aluminum in several major organs, kidney, spleen, liver, heart, lymph node, and brain. I'm not really sure how we could justify doing this unless we really, really, really do exhaustive safety studies. And I don't know, I just are on the side of caution, but that's just me. So that sort of begs the question, before we get into this study itself, it begs the question, what, what would be the mechanism or how would aluminum cause asthma in a person? Right, so, so the, the um, conjecture in this paper, and, and uh, I think the term study that you used was very generous because I, I think really they didn't study their issue, but the, the, the conjecture is when you're born, you're born with an allergic bias, if you will, that, that so, so that, and you're educated, your immune system is educated away from that allergic bias by being exposed to a variety of, of, of viruses and bacteria and parasites and fungi in the, in the body to which you make an immune response and then sort of that educates you away from this allergic bias to a non-allergic bias. So we're said another way, the, the T cells, which are a type of cell in your body that can determine this, the, the allergic bias is a Th2 response, which you're then sort of educating yourself away from with the Th1 response. And, and if you look, for example, in, um, in the developing world, Things like uh, skin allergies and asthma are much less common 
because very early on in the developing world, you're more likely to be colonized with parasites in your intestine. You're more likely to be colonized with bacteria that produce toxins. And so, and so that's why. And, and there was actually a New England Journal of Medicine uh, op-ed piece, an editorial piece uh, long ago that I'll never forget because the title of that, talking about this, um, this so-called hygiene hypothesis, that the more uh, sanitation, the higher the level of sanitation in the country or hygiene in the home, then the more likely you are to have these kinds of allergic uh, problems. The title of that uh, op-ed piece was called Eat Dirt, Please. Oh, no. <laughs> so the question is, does this do that? Does aluminum do that? And I would argue that although that was, it was conjectured in this paper, there was no evidence to support that, that people who, say, had more or less aluminum had differences in their TH1 versus TH2 response. It was just kind of thrown out there as a possibility, and that's not good enough. No. What the paper actually says is, I'll just go ahead and read it. It is theoretically possible that exposure to aluminum through vaccination could produce an immune profile biased toward Th2 and away from T helper 1 cell, Th1, immune responses. This hypothesis is a speculative one because it is based on limited data from animal studies and has not to our knowledge been investigated in humans. A Th2 biased immune response could again in theory increase risk of allergic diseases such as asthma while decreasing risk of autoimmune diseases such as type 1 diabetes mellitus which are thought to be Th1 mediated. So what we need to do I think is to have a little discussion on the Th1 and Th2. And one of the things about aluminum as an adjuvant is it does induce a Th2 response. So the paper doesn't speculate that infants are born with a Th2 bias. The paper is literally saying that the use of aluminum adjuvant through vaccination is eliciting the Th2 response and is biasing an infant towards that direction. So it has nothing to do with how infants are born, and anything about developing countries. Here is a 1999 paper titled TH1-TH2 cells. TH1 cells mainly develop following infections by intracellular bacteria and some viruses, whereas TH2 cells predominate in response to infestations by gastrointestinal nematodes. So that's a little incompatible with what Offit was just saying. Here is another paper. This one's from February 2021. It is titled Modulating TH2 Cell Immunity for the Treatment of Asthma. Here is a direct quote. It is well established that allergen-specific T helper 2 cells, TH2 cells, play central roles in developing allergic asthma. As such, 80% of children and 60% of adult asthma cases are linked to an unwarranted TH2 cell response against respiratory allergens. So what could be causing that unwarranted TH2 response? Could it possibly be all of those pediatric vaccines that every single infant gets? Does aluminum induce a TH2 response? Here is a 2011 paper that explores that very issue. It's titled, Towards an Understanding of the Adjuvant Action of Aluminum. It has been known for many years that aluminum salts induce robust antibody responses. The discoveries that antibody production depends on T-cell help and that Th cell subsets with different functions exist led to studies to determine the effects of aluminum salts on different Th cell subsets. Aluminum salts were found to preferentially induce Th2 cells 
which mediate the differentiation of B cells that secrete Th2 cell-associated antibody isotopes, IgG1 and IgE. Aluminum in vaccines induces a Th2 type response. The Th2 response is associated with asthma and IgE is associated with food allergy. So I guess the main weakness of this paper that I've been hearing is that it sort of draws a correlation between two things without showing whether or not there's a real relationship between them. Is that fair? Fair. So I think if you if you have something that you think causes something, it would be important to show a biological basis for it. Again, so there is a relationship between aluminum adjuvants inducing a Th2 type 2 response, and there's also in a relationship between the Th2 response and asthma. Now we add a observational study that's showing that children that get more aluminum have higher rates of asthma. Um, and, and, and most importantly, this is the most, my, my criticism of this paper really centers on one thing. If you're going to propose that one thing caused another, and you're looking at two different groups, in this case, group one would be a group that received more aluminum than group two. And you're arguing that that group that received more aluminum in vaccines than group two, that second group, um, have now a higher incidence of asthma because of that. Well, you have to make sure you control for so-called confounding variables. You have to isolate the effect of that one variable. So that the only difference between those two groups is the amount of aluminum they received in vaccines. You want to make sure that they're identical in terms of other risk factors, like breastfeeding, which can be protective against asthma, or a family history of asthma. Imagine that, the, 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 and this would be obviously a huge flaw in the study, that the group that received more aluminum also happened to have uh, parents that had a family history, or grandparents that had a family history of asthma. You have to control for that to make sure that the breastfeeding was the same on both sides, that the family history was the same, that the exposure to, to, uh, to pollutants in the air is the same, that where they live matters, because you you know if you're living in a highly industrialized region and most of your patients or people in this study who, who had higher levels of aluminum lived in more industrialized regions, that's a confounding factor. So you have to make sure that's, that's the same on both groups, which they didn't. They didn't do that. They didn't do the one basic thing they needed to do to prove that something was causally associated. First of all, observational studies don't prove or disprove causality, but they can pick up associations. And that is why the study that we're reading is titled Association Between Aluminum Exposure from Vaccines Before dot dot dot. So it's not the authors don't actually put forth that there's a causal relationship because they know that an observational study can't prove or disprove. Um, but they did include a few sentences on the biological plausibility. So I will read that to you. For example, Mice develop asthma-like allergic airway inflammation when given a protein, chicken ovalbumin, and aluminum adjuvant via peritoneal injection, followed by subsequent airway exposure to ovalbumin. However, data from animal studies suggests the theoretical possibility that aluminum adjuvants could influence allergy risk through inducing a T helper 2 cell, TH2 biased immune response, end quote. So if we can see it in animals, it's very possible that the same phenomenon is happening in humans. And lastly, I will say, yes, absolutely, our cases and controls or two groups of infants or children that we're trying to match and compare exposures, yes, they do need to be properly matched. And so that is one of my biggest complaints about all of the vaccine and SIDS studies of decades past. 
is that all of those studies that were done in the 90s, all the case controls that basically exonerated vaccines as a cause for SIDS, even though observational studies can't really disprove causation, they just compared the immunization uptake of those two groups. And they didn't even control for the fact that many of the SIDS infants just died too young to be vaccinated or that they were much sicker prior. And so that's why they were delaying or they weren't getting their vaccines on time. And other things like they were more likely to be premature and just so different, so different than the controls. So yes, go back and redo all those studies. One study that I'm thinking of in particular that is saying vaccines may reduce the risk, they didn't even control for sleeping position. And then once they did, the supposed protective effect of vaccinations became non-significant. So what that means is the infants who died in unsafe sleeping environments camouflaged the effect of vaccines. Instead, what they did was they sort of said, they said you know, is associated, uh, not necessarily causally associated, but you can't put that kind of study out there. You can't. It's not, I think that where the CDC, I guess, can fall to criticism here, they uh, live under the mantra of transparency. They want to be transparent. They don't want to ever be perceived as hiding something. And so maybe they feared that this so quote unquote association, which was not in any sense made because the right kind of uh, controls weren't, uh, weren't, uh, um, weren't, weren't put in these studies, um, that they would be hiding something. But you know, you're allowed to hide bad data, really. You're allowed to not be transparent about data that in no way informs the public about whether one thing is associated with it. Okay, so this retrospective cohort study was conducted in seven medical care organizations participating in the VSD, which is the Vaccine Safety Data Link. VSD sites are located in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Washington, Oregon, California, and Colorado. And the VSD population of 12 million is similar to the U.S. population with respect to demographics and socioeconomic characteristics. So it's a pretty big population. It wasn't like just in one state with a ton of air pollution or something. It's it's spread out. But what they found was for both groups, for the children with eczema and children without eczema, that they had a stepwise increase in diagnoses of asthma for every milligram of injected aluminum. So the lowest dose of aluminum had the lowest rate of asthma. And so for the children with eczema, for every one milligram of vaccine-associated aluminum, they had a 26% increase for risk of asthma, persistent asthma too. So the the criteria was not just like they had to have, you know, certain diagnostic codes and prescription and things like that in place. And for the children with no eczema, it was 19% increase for every per milligram of aluminum. So, and you see it for both, you see a stepwise increase. Now, of course, what would be interesting is if they looked at zero milligrams of aluminum, by itself. And they didn't do that. And I know why they didn't do that is because if you compared the rate of asthma in a completely unvaccinated population to any vaccines, it's going to be a lot more dramatic. It's going to be a quite a large increase. And the best way to prove someone like me wrong would be to do the study to include the zero exposed control group. That would have been a great control for this. Okay, so they have a negative control outcome, outcome defined as all cause injury at 24 to 59 months, and there was no difference. So 
aluminum exposure is not associated with all-cause injury. So the fact that it is associated with asthma or persistent asthma gives us the reasonable cause to do more research and to not just throw this finding away the way Paul seems to want to. And I think they, they you know, they're, they're putting out now this, this uh, their talking points. And the talking points are that this should change the way that you... Um, you know, that you vaccinate your children, that we, but, but, you know, but they scared people by putting this out there. And, and, and worse, I mean, I think a parent, say, of a child who has asthma may say, you know, I'm not going to vaccinate my next child or my younger child because of that. And in fact, people who have asthma are at higher risk of pneumonia. So therefore benefit from vaccines like pneumococcal vaccine or influenza vaccine or COVID vaccines. I mean, the kind of, you know, viruses or bacteria that can cause pneumonia. So, so, it, so you've done more harm than good. You, you've, you've basically violated your ethos, which is first do no harm. First do no harm really should be applied to those instances where you're giving a prophylactic medication to a healthy infant to prevent something that they might never, ever, ever get anyways. And the actual prophylactic medication carries with it a risk and multiple kinds of risk. So there's an immediate risk. There's a risk of a immediate adverse reaction that could be any number of things. But then there's also now this accumulating evidence that there are long-term risks that some of these early life injections can increase your risk of having a long-term chronic illness. And I think this is where we need to start having this discussion is what are all of the possible consequences of these early life injections? And does this increase total morbidity of a person over their lifetime? Let's have that conversation, please. And this to me is thimerosal redux. This is this, what we went through this in the late 1990s and now we're going through it again. It appears like this lesson hasn't been learned, which is the, the, the concern that, that mercury or ethyl mercury, which is a uh, preservative that was in vaccines, was causing harm when there was no evidence that it was. And all that did was scare people and, and did nothing good came of that whole affair other than it created certain anti-vaccine groups. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the mercury, the ethyl mercury concerns and also the autism concerns that slightly preceded that are sort of a lot of things that many of us are looking at right now. And, you, you know, I saw a question being asked today, would it be wise to just not bring up this paper because then it'll call attention to it? But I feel like there are lessons that we learned early on. So, you know, you're obviously on camp, like, let's talk about the flaws in the study from the outset. You know, what would you say to someone who says, I don't know, why don't we just like, just don't talk about it and people won't notice. Because people do notice. And, and if, you're, if you're not talking about it, it looks like you're hiding something. I think you get out in front of it. You explain what, what the incredible weaknesses of this paper. I mean, this is like, you know, the Andrew Wakefield's quote-unquote study where he had 12 children, eight of them had autism, all within presumably a month of getting an MMR uh, vaccine. And that was supposed to be some sort of proof. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it was, that, that study was no, or that paper was no better than having eight children who ate peanut butter sandwiches that within a month of that developed autism. And, you know, you have to, you have to do control groups. You have to, and that was done eventually in, you know, in 18 different studies on seven different countries on three different continents, showing you were no more likely to get autism if you received the MMR vaccine than if you didn't. But you have to make sure that those two groups were the same that the people who got MMR vaccine were the same as people who didn't get it. 
in terms of healthcare safety behavior, in terms of medical background, in terms of socioeconomic background. So you can isolate the effect of that one variable. That's the way you do those studies, and those studies were done. I should be counting all the logical fallacies, really, because, you know, anytime we bring up Wakefield and the MMR autism and we bring up Timerosol and he's going to bring up polio in a few minutes, he's trying really hard to distract us from just looking at the study and what it found. I'm actually concerned that it was funded in the first place. Because, you know, one, one, another critique I'm hearing coming out is, oh, this is an observational study. But observational studies can actually be really, really useful if they're set up correctly, as you've pointed out. Um, but, you know, at what point in the funding process should someone say, no, you're not setting this up right. Like, we're pulling our funding. Well, at the very least, uh, I, I, and we don't live in that world, but in, in, a, in a better world, uh, this would never be public. I think any reasonable journal would look at this and say, you haven't proven a thing. You can't say anything about an association between this case, receipt of aluminum vaccines and asthma, because you have not done the appropriate controls. We reject this paper, and it gets rejected and rejected and rejected. Sadly, there are a number of journals out there which aren't particularly good, which which where you, where you can get a paper published. I think, frankly, you can publish anything these days. Sadly, so there isn't that screening that used to be true. I think maybe thirty years ago just want to let you know I am cutting out small little segments because they kind of ramble on how much they wish the paper wasn't funded etc. It's not as though the authors of this paper are Andrew Wakefield and Chris Exley and Mark Blaxel or whatever. These are not people who are making a living off of being anti-vaccine by any stretch of the imagination. These are scientists that we could consider to be credible in all sorts of ways. I'm wondering, you know, if you think that there will be criticism of this paper that they'll listen to, amend or retract or anything, um, is that a possibility of what might happen? Uh, One hopes so. This was a CDC-funded study, and I'm sure that they have an ulterior motive, which we will eventually find out. If I think if you ask anti-vaccine activists what you want, I think they would say, I don't want vaccines to be mandated. I want to make my own decisions and, and do that, and we'll be right back where we were in the 1960s and 70s when uh, measles reigned until we really got it under control by, by essentially having school, school vaccine mandates. And eliminate mandates and these diseases will come back. And you just saw a case of polio in New York. And, and don't take that lightly. Uh, that, that, when you see paralysis caused by this particular virus, which is a type 2 vaccine revertant virus that's circulating throughout the world now, that can only happen in an under-vaccinated population. And assume that he, repre- because he was paralyzed by this virus, only about one in 2,000 people who are infected with this particular strain will be paralyzed by it. So assume there's another 2,000 people out there who are infected with this virus. And if you, if you think that the New York wastewater is a problem, look at wastewater everywhere in this country, and you're going to find these, these kinds of strains. That's why you have to keep polio vaccine rates high, or else you'll see this disease come back. And, and that is not a disease you want to see come back. Correction. That is something that you see not in an under-vaccinated community, but in a vaccinated society. So the reason why we have this vaccine strain circulating is precisely because of the vaccine. The oral polio vaccine contains a weakened butt live virus that replicates in the guts and then is excreted out in people's feces that then infected other people. As a child in the 1950s, uh, having seen seen polio up close, uh, that is not a disease you want to see come back. Yeah, you were in the polio ward um, as a child, not with polio, but 
right? But I saw that. I mean, I saw kids in, in iron lungs and I saw... It would be nice if there was some more discussion on the particular risk factors for paralytic poliomyelitis, since we know that actual paralysis occurs in fewer than 1% of total polio virus infections. For example, with this type 2 virus, like Paul said, that it's one case of paralysis per 2,000 infections. And what's interesting to me about paralytic poliomyelitis is that itself is not a contagious disease. You you cannot transmit it. You can't catch paralysis from another person. It's just something that happens in your own body and no one really understands why. It's not the typical course for the virus. So we've had enteroviruses for hundreds of years, thousands of years, but we never had epidemics of paralysis until the 1900s. Only in the 19, late 1940s and 50s did we see this uptick in paralysis. It was found that recent injection was related to paralysis. McCloskey and others found that the paralysis was related to the limb of injection. So if a child was injected in their arm or their leg, that that particular limb was more likely to be paralyzed within the month of injection than after the month. So the zero to 28 days versus 29 days and beyond, they had a higher risk of poliomyelitis. Not only that, but tonsillectomies were found to increase your risk of bulbar polio, which was paralysis of their lungs. And that particular type of paralysis had the highest mortality rate. Today, about 500,000 tonsillectomies are performed each year. But in the 1940s and 50s, over 1.4 million children were being tonsillectomied every single year. There are so many theories on what caused this uptick in paralytic poliomyelitis in the late 1940s and 50s. From DDT, the toxic pesticide that they actually thought prevented polio, so they would spray it directly on people as a prevention, to recent injections, to tonsillectomies, and there's even a hygiene theory. I think all of these things could be true and collaborating together for a perfect storm for paralytic poliomyelitis. I know it might sound weird for me to say, like, maybe it's not just the virus's fault, but I mean, we really did live in a homeostasis with the poliovirus for a millennia. And it was really after widespread use of the syringe that we really see the uptick in cases of paralysis specifically. And we do see the same phenomenon in the developing world where they didn't have any paralytic poliomyelitis until we brought vaccines to those countries. Maybe 20 kids in a ward, kids were in our lungs, kids were screaming because of the hot packs. It was one visiting hour a week. I mean, it was hell. Uh, literally, it wasn't like hellish. It was hell. I think I was in hell for six weeks when I was I did shorten that. You could go back and listen to his full story if you wanted to hear it. But I just wanted to remind everybody that the podcast vaccine talk episode was convened around the release of a brand new aluminum asthma study, a study that found a relationship between the exposure of aluminum adjuvants and the outcome of asthma in children. And they have yet to talk about it. They've talked about the limitations or the flaws. They've talked about how safe aluminum is. They've talked about polio is in New York and what polio was like in the 1950s. And they talked about Wakefield and the MMR autism studies, and which were really just comparing vaccinated to vaccinated. And yes, they all have the same or similar rates of autism. 
Vaccines are not big money makers for these companies. They're often less than 10% of what they do. I mean, we went from 27 vaccine makers in 1955 to 18 vaccine makers in 1980 to four vaccine makers today. It's not a lucrative thing. And, and to make it more expensive, make it more difficult, and you'll just see companies abandoning vaccines for America's children. Oh, gosh. Now he's making claims that vaccines are not big money makers, despite the fact that it's common knowledge that Pfizer made $81.3 billion in 2021. And not only that, but the cumulative sales for Comirnaty product is going to be $107 billion. That's a lot of money to me, but maybe not to Paul Offit. Look at it this way. Drug companies have a government contract with every single person in this country, every infant, child, and person throughout multiple periods of their life. To me, that's a pretty lucrative position to be in. But I think the most disturbing thing that Paul just said was that if we complain about vaccines and want safer products, that that in itself would de-incentivize the industry from making vaccines for children, that, that these drug companies will completely abandon vaccines for kids if we have legitimate concerns about the safety of the current vaccine schedule. What does that really say about the industry? The threat that wanting a safer product would collapse the industry. I'm kind of blown away by the thought of that and the fact that he wouldn't want to be on the right side of history and be on the side that wants a safer product. Because we've done this before, and this is a very rudimentary part of medicine. As a society, we learn as we go, and we learn from our mistakes and make better choices in the future. This is very fundamental for human culture. And even just in the vaccine world, we've done this a lot, where we've actually changed out vaccines for safer products. So we have the, um, the DTP vaccine was replaced by the acellular DTaP in the 1990s. And the reason is because the DTP vaccine was associated with encephalopathy and seizures and other serious adverse reactions that were just unacceptably high. We have remade the polio vaccine several times because of trial and error and because of we learned from our mistakes. So that first polio vaccine, the SOC vaccine in 1955, inactivated polio, contained SV40, a virus that came from simian monkeys. The virus was discovered to cause tumors and cancer in laboratory animals by a few government scientists, actually Sarah Stewart and Bernice Eddy. That virus also made its way in the first oral polio vaccine vaccine developed by Albert Sabin, which replaced the IPV in the early 1960s. The oral polio vaccine would be used all around the world for several decades until the 1990s. Uh, many of the developed countries specifically decided to switch back to the IPV because they found that the live virus oral polio vaccine was reverting back into virulent strains and causing paralysis. Imagine if you couldn't complain about that or you couldn't say, hey, I don't want to use this vaccine because it's causing polio. I would like you to make a safer vaccine. Imagine that being taboo. Oh, it is. And then Timerosol. Paul thinks there was no real issue with Timerosol, but they were able to successfully remove it from vaccines and they don't give mercury containing amalgam fillings to children under eight anymore either. Over the years, there have been a lot of changes to the vaccine schedule that have come as a direct result of parents initiating the change because of concerns. In this case, it's the CDC. 
I think that the ulterior motive here is to make mRNA more acceptable to parents, make it seem like a better option. And I don't think mRNA is going to be acceptable to parents. So I don't think there's any way to put lipstick on that pig. But I do think that we shouldn't be injecting aluminum. And if you can't make vaccines without some kind of a safe adjuvant, then maybe we should rethink the whole model and not harm people's immune systems. Because I don't think that is an acceptable risk. And finally, Paul mentioned that there were 27 manufacturers in 1955 and that dwindled to 18 in 1980. And then he said that there were only four today. What he is really describing is a monopoly. So before 1955, there were only really two vaccines on the market. There was DPT and smallpox. And there were a small handful of manufacturers. I definitely can't find 27. But I will say that when the polio vaccine came out in 1955, there were five manufacturers that were awarded that contract. And they were Pittman Moore, Eli Lilly, Wyeth, Cutter, and Merck. And Mark is still around. Cutter was bought by Bayer. And Wyeth was bought by Pfizer. Eli Lilly is still around. And Pittman Moore was bought by Bosch. And then we have another old drug company vaccine maker, Liderl. Liderl. I don't know how to say that. But they were bought by Wyeth and then bought by Pfizer. So we see this kind of in every industry really, but it's especially apparent in the vaccine industry that some of these older drug companies are just bought by the vaccine giants. So yeah, we only have four today, five today, and it's because they have absorbed all the competition. Right. And I think, Paul, I really think that is the end goal of the anti-vaccine movement. I don't think it's just about mandates. I really think it's about, I don't want anyone getting vaccinated. I'm against vaccines for anybody, not just me. Um, It's not about medical freedom or, you know, freedom of, you know, over their bodies at all. They really are against the idea of vaccines existing. I agree. I think that's exactly right. And then what did they gain? Then we get to go back where where we were in in 1900. Yeah, that's, there's so many reasons I don't want to go back there. And, you know, obviously children dying before the age of five is first among them. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are they suggesting that if we made any alterations to our current vaccine schedule, that we would go back 122 years? I mean, that's literally what they said. And that is often the sentiment, that the argument that is raised whenever someone has any kind of questions or concerns about vaccines. But let's really think about this critically for a second. Would we automatically be sent straight back to 1900? As in 1900, the turn of the century. Then we get to go back where we were in 1900. Okay, so they're suggesting that we're going to go back to the time before antibiotics, which came out in the 1940s, before refrigerators, which came out in the 1930s, you know, to keep your food cold so you didn't have to eat old, moldy, spoiled food, before motor cars, which came out in the 1920s. So back to the time where the streets were filled with horse manure, that's where we're going. So before clean drinking water as well, New Jersey was the first state to implement clean drinking water, chlorinated drinking water in 1908. So we're going to go back before that. 
So just to give you an idea of how much horse manure we're talking about, the average horse poops anywhere between 15 and 35 pounds of manure each day. And back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, before motor cars, the, a busy city like London would have 50,000 horses out and about. And New York City had 100,000 horses out and about. There was such a poop problem that in 1894, there was something called the Great Horse Manure Crisis. You might be wondering, why am I talking about poop? Well, it's because it spreads disease, okay? So a lot of the infectious diseases that we used to die from were often spread from poop. So even horse manure, it spread typhoid fever and tetanus because, well, it's a great fertile growing ground, right? And it's everywhere. So the leading causes of death in 1900, and I'm specifically talking about infectious diseases, were diarrhea and enteritis, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. And a lot of this was related to overcrowding, poor sanitation, it's before antibiotics, and people lived in really crowded living conditions and also did not get the kind of nutrition they needed. So this was before cold food storage and cold food transportation. So basically you ate what you had access to. You weren't getting strawberries delivered from, you know, a thousand miles away. So you just ate what you had and most likely you were very malnourished. And it's still true today, if you throw a virus or a bacteria on a malnourished person, they're not gonna do that great because it turns out that adequate nutrition is pretty important as far as building resistance to infections and your overall health. But seriously, I wonder how many of the Vax Talk listeners even question or do a double take on that date because 1900 is like 48 years before the first vaccine was widely used. And I'm talking about the, from the current schedule. For some reason, if we stopped using the DPT vaccine, for example, we would go back 48 years before the vaccine was even used. And what's interesting about that is um, from the turn of the century to when the DBT vaccine did come out in 1948, the mortality for pertussis had already dropped about 90%. So I guess I'm just wondering why, why would we go back to 1900 when the vaccine didn't even come out until 1948? It's like you may as well say we'll go back to like the 1200s or something, the Middle Ages, right? I mean, that's really what you're trying to get at. What's really interesting to me is it seems like we have this kind of medical amnesia. You know, a lot of these vaccines were actually added pretty recently. Uh, the bulk of the schedule was added in after the 1986 Vaccine Injury Act. And yet we act like if any of these vaccines are taken off the schedule or we have to reformulate them, that, you know, we're suddenly going to be sent right back to the 1900s or the 1800s or the 1700s. We try to make it all dramatic and and really make people turn against other people. Wouldn't you hate the person that's trying to send you back to 1890, send you into the apex of the great horse manure crisis, take away your fridge and your car and replace your clean running water with poop water? I, I really think so. I think it's about, you know, spreading hate and, and stimulating fear. So um, I will only really speak for myself, but I will say that I have no interest in getting rid of vaccines at all, just like I wouldn't want to get rid of antibiotics or, you know, any other medication. I think everything has a time and a place. And I think one of the things that we could take away and glean from this whole situation is, for example, antibiotics, we, you know, they were just, they were discovered in um, around World War II. We started using them and they contributed a lot to the reduced morbidity and mortality of a lot of these 
these infectious diseases and infections. But there's also a consequence and an unintended consequence at that. And, you know, in the last um, several decades, we've learned that we used, we overused antibiotics and we basically created all of these superbugs and these antibiotic resistant strains. So I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. It's going to be some kind of healthy balance between extremes. I don't think we can keep doing what we're doing. I don't I think that we're eventually going to be really harming people. So I do think that we need to scale back and figure out something that is a little uh, gentler for the body. And, you know, we don't want to have every single person hyper allergic to everything and allergic to food and immunocompromised. So I think that we do need to figure out a new strategy to help people. So here's an issue. Take, for example, the hepatitis B vaccine. Today, nearly every infant born in the United States is given the hepatitis B vaccine within hours of birth, despite very few of them genuinely being at risk for the disease. Acute hepatitis B has never been a common childhood illness in this country. It's transmitted via blood or semen, and regarding infants, is typically transmitted from a hep B positive mother to a child during or after birth. For most families, this is not really an issue. The asthma aluminum study found that for every one milligram of injected aluminum adjuvant, an elevated risk of asthma was observed in children spanning six states and over 300,000 children. Hep B is a three-dose series, and depending on the manufacturer, could contain more than one milligram of aluminum, which could in turn potentially increase an infant's risk of asthma, which is also a lifelong chronic condition. When looking for reliable statistics on the incidence of annual new diagnoses for hepatitis B in childhood, I came across Paul Offit's chop.edu website where he claims that before the vaccine, every year 18,000 children were diagnosed with hepatitis B by the time they reached 10 years old. But this high number cannot be corroborated by the CDC's surveillance of the disease. According to the CDC, the rate in children ages 1 through 9 in 1986 was 0.9 per 100,000 children, which was about 270 cases of acute hepatitis B per year. Given that most of these children would be children in high-risk situations, either born from or living with someone with hepatitis B, coming from a country where hepatitis B is endemic, institutionalized children who are getting a lot of injections, and or those who are receiving blood donation products that were contaminated with the hepatitis B virus. These children are not reflective of all children. Since most children are not at risk of acute hepatitis B, wouldn't you as a parent like the knowledge that the hepatitis B vaccine series may increase your healthy child's risk of asthma? If you are the parent of a preterm infant who has a higher risk of asthma than a full-term infant, wouldn't it be nice to have the option to decline that series based on your own risk-benefit for your child? We have always suggested that vaccines may trade an acute infection for a lifelong chronic illness, and this is a great example. And what's worse is very few children ever got hepatitis B prior to the vaccine. It's not a common childhood disease. 
and completely missing from Paul Offit's critique of the asthma aluminum study is how preterm and very preterm infants had a higher risk of aluminum-associated asthma. And what's interesting is the study that they're about to bring up excluded infants born prior to 37 weeks. So it essentially excluded a demographic population that is very susceptible to vaccine injury. Well, let's just go ahead and hear what he has to say about it. So I want to go back to just one more study, and that is the um, blood and hair aluminum levels vaccine history and early infant development across sectional studies. So what did that tell us about aluminum in vaccination? Well, so, so there was no correlation between the level of blood or hair aluminum and, and problems regarding uh, development. It is incredible to me that the host of Vax Talk and Paul Offit find comfort in this cross-sectional study because right off the bat, the study that they don't like, the asthma aluminum study, spanned across six states and included 326,991 children were included in the final cohort. And yet the study that they want us to consider as proof that aluminum is perfectly fine and not correlated with any kind of problem, had a total of 85 infants recruited from one urban healthcare center of mainly minority and lower socioeconomic groups. So the study that they're redirecting us to is way less representational and lower powered to determine the safety and how it would apply to, you know, all children. Let me go ahead and read to you the study population. It is 9 to 13 month old infants and they excluded infants born before 37 weeks and smaller than 2,500 grams, which is pretty critical here because the toxicity of aluminum is much greater in premature infants. And importantly, the other study, the one that we're supposed to be talking about, the asthma aluminum study, they used the term infants, the the infants born at 37 or greater weeks, they used them as the reference point. And um, the infants who were born prior to that had higher rates of asthma. So given some of these issues, okay, so we have a study that on the one hand has 320,000 children in it across six different states compared to a study that is has 85 infants recruited from one urban healthcare site and they're 95% minority and all lower socioeconomic. Even the study authors warn us that we should be interpreting their results with caution. Here is what they said. Our results should be interpreted with caution. Findings may not be generalizable as enrollment was confined to one urban primary care site with high numbers of minority families of lower socioeconomic status. Not only that, but the study actually did find lower gross motor score, the infants that had higher hair aluminum. And that has been confirmed many times before this study and since that study. So here is something from Shanghai. It is published in 2021. One is titled Early Life Exposure to Aluminum and Fine Motor Performance in Infants, a Longitudinal Study. And that um, conclusion is aluminum level was associated with an increased risk of having a low fine motor score. Early life exposure to aluminum may be associated with poor fine motor skills in a dose response manner among apparently healthy infants at age 12 months. 
You know, after all is said and done, I'm not totally sure that hair or blood or urine are the best ways to detect aluminum toxicity in the human body. I'm not actually sure that those are the right ways. I mean, if the Movza study couldn't detect a rise in serum or urine aluminum, there may be a mechanism of aluminum toxicity that we're just not aware of yet. Um, which tells you what you would imagine, which is that, you know, you live on a planet where aluminum is common. Um, people eat and drink and inhale aluminum. You can't find anything having to do with vaccines that affects that, affects that. but more importantly, uh, the level of aluminum that you're typically exposed to doesn't cause any, any sort of developmental problems for the same reason that the level of mercury that you're exposed to typically in the environment or, or thallium or cadmium or beryllium or arsenic affects you either. We're all exposed to those traits trace amounts, but I think we have trouble accepting that. I think when you, if you tell people that you have trace amounts of arsenic in your bloodstream, knowing that high quantities of arsenic can be fatal, that scares people, and it shouldn't, because it's okay to have, have levels of these, these uh, metals, either heavy or light metals, that are not harmful, because there's no avoiding it. And I think that, that's what this, this uh, study is very reassuring, that you're not likely to, uh, that, that, that there is no correlation between aluminum in blood and hair, and any sort of developmental problem. Here is the conclusions. Infant blood aluminum and hair aluminum varied considerably, but did not correlate with their immunization history. Likewise, there was no correlation between blood aluminum and infant development or between hair aluminum and language or cognitive development. An inverse correlation between hair aluminum and B-SID motor scores deserves further investigation. Remember that these are infants around 13 months of age, and they were all similar demographic characteristics like minority race and lower socioeconomic. So the main study that we're talking about, the one that makes the correlation, really reminds me of that Spurious Correlations website that links things like Nicolas Cage movies to the number of shark attacks, for example, that you can make a correlation between any two things. And I really like um, when I was talking to Erica Dewald about this earlier this week, she said that the study basically says kids get vaccines, vaccines have aluminum, and kids get asthma or have asthma. And that's all the study says. Vaccines don't prevent asthma. They don't prevent everything else that occurs in life either, except for vaccines and medical disease. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, you might be thinking your kid is perfect and I got some bad news for you. <laughs> your child is first and foremost a human being and the human body is not perfect. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. Um, it was great chatting with you. I always like talking to you anyhow. That is a pretty sad interpretation of the human body because I will say that, well, I think we're actually perfectly suited and perfectly situated for where we are. I don't think that our body is riddled with mistakes and errors. I actually think we're perfectly suited for our environment, unless we totally mess it up. And that wouldn't be our body's fault, that would be our ego's fault. Well anyways, that's my two cents. Thank you for making it this far if you did. And also, what is wrong with you? Just kidding, actually I'm really glad.